when Cameron was born, he appeared to be a normal, healthy little boy. And it wasn't until some years later uh, that his parents realized that there might be a problem. His parents noticed uh, that he had a really hard time distinguishing some of the colors. Um, and in fact, most of the colors. In fact, they would ask him... Um, to, to point out the red ball or to get the red ball. And sometimes he would bring them the red ball and sometimes he would bring them a green one. They'd be looking through a book and they'd ask him to point to a blue object on a page and sometimes he would and sometimes he would point to something that was yellow. and uh, He just wasn't able to distinguish uh, one color from another. And so uh, they had this concern and so they asked uh, his, his doctor about it and they said, we're, we're a little concerned about this. And, the doctor did a test and confirmed that he was born colorblind, that he wasn't able to distinguish these colors. And so Cameron had lived uh, the first five years or six years of his life um, really unable to see all these colors that were around him. These colors existed. He just couldn't see them. And so he was never able to appreciate the beauty of flowers. He was never able to appreciate the beauty of artwork. He was never able to appreciate um, many of the things that we take for granted each and every day. And so... All of that changed one day, as you saw in the video, when Cameron received these special type of sunglasses. These, um, they call them um, in-chrome glasses, and they're a special type of glasses for people who suffer from colorblindness. And uh, you saw kind of the, just the joy on his face the moment that he realized that he could see things that he had never seen before, that, that he could distinguish colors that he would never able to distinguish before, that all of a sudden his world kind of opened up to him. And so I can imagine that as a parent, this was a special moment not only for him, but for, for them as well. And I can imagine this is a moment that they'd been praying for. This is a moment that they had prayed that Cameron would be able to see like everybody else. That They had been praying that Cameron would be able to see things that he had never seen before. And I gotta say, I do think it's kind of funny they took him to Mellow Mushroom. Um, and so some of you guys may know Mellow Mushroom. It's known for its very colorful, kind of psychedelic decor in there. And so I don't know if that was really to test out the limits of the glasses or just throw this poor little kid in like sensory overload um, for the first few minutes that he had these glasses. Uh, but I would dare say that this was a moment that changed Cameron's life. This was a moment that he was, he was going to see things that he had never seen before, that he was going to see the unseen. And I would dare say that from that moment on, he was never the same. And I don't know Cameron, I haven't followed up with him or anything like that. But I would dare say that this one moment changed everything for him. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to be introduced to a guy named Elisha. Okay? And Elisha is very much like Cameron's parents in the video that you watched, in that he is, he is able to see something that other people or someone else cannot see, and Elisha desperately wants this other person to be able to see what he sees. And not just for this moment, but he, he wants him to see it because he knows that this moment, the moment that he sees things that are unseen, the moment that he sees things that, that he hasn't seen before, is going to be the moment that this person's life is changed forever. This is going to be a life-changing moment. Moment. And so I want you to understand that when we read this story, this is an amazing story, it's an exciting story, but this is not a story that just took place thousands of years ago. That, that what Elisha is praying for this person to be able to see things that he doesn't normally see is really the heart and story of this message. It's really the, the, the prayer that we're going to have as we work through this text. And, and I'm praying for all of us that as we work through this text, that God, I'm praying that our eyes are opened. And that we're able to see things and have a confidence that maybe we didn't have before. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me, like I said, to 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 8, and then we'll read down through verse 23. But verse 8 says, The king of Aram was waging war against Israel, and he conferred with his servants, My camp will be at such and such place. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Be careful passing through this place, for the Armenians are going down there. Consequently, the king of Israel sent word to the place the man of God had told him about. And the man of God repeatedly warned the king, so the king would be on his guard. The king of Aram was enraged because of this matter. And he called his servants and demanded of them, Tell me, which one of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No one, my lord the king, Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, Even the words you speak... In your bedroom. So the king said, Go and see where he is, so that I can send men to capture him. And when he was told Elisha was in Dotham, he sent horses, chariots, and a massive army there. And they went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, 
he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. And so he asked Elijah, Oh, my master, what are we to do? And Elijah said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And Elijah prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. And so the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw that on the mountain was, or excuse me, he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Armenians came against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Please strike this nation with blindness. So he struck them with blindness according to Elisha's words. And when Elisha said to them, This is not the way, this is not the city, follow me. And I will take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And when they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Lord, open these men's eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they discovered they were in Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, My father, should I kill them? I will kill them. And Elijah replied, Do not kill them. Do you kill those who have been captured with your sword or with your bow? Set food and water in front of them, so that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master, and the Aramean raiders did not come into Israel's land again. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are so excited about this passage. God, I am so excited about the message that you have for us this morning, God. And for some of us, this is going to be a very convicting message. God, for some of us, this is going to be a very comforting message. And so, God, I pray, as I've already done, in the stillness of this moment, God, let us be laid open and bare to you. God, I pray that in the stillness of this moment, God, we seek the, the words of Elisha. God, open our eyes so that we can see. God, open our eyes so that we can see the truth that You have in Your Word. God, open our ears so that we can hear the truth that You have for our lives. God, open our hearts so that we can examine what is inside of us. And God, let us be laid open, but God, let us also be open to what You have for us. God, to see things in a totally different perspective. God, to see things in a way that only You see them. God, God this morning I pray that You open our eyes, not to this physical world that's around us, but to the spiritual realities, to the spiritual world that lies beyond what our eyes normally perceive. God, let us see in a way that only you do this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I read an article this week about a British, or from a British psychologist who stated that she had found, quote, a very powerful window into the developing minds of young children. All right? so, so she has discovered that by observing kids, she has this very powerful window that she can see into the minds of these kids. And what was interesting about this article was that she didn't develop some kind of new method of testing kids. She didn't develop some kind of new test or, or clinical research to, to go through these kids' mind. In fact, what she did was simply to understand these kids is she let them, or she watched as the parents played two games with their kids. Two very natural games that I would dare to say that everybody in this room has played with or played at least at some point in their life. The two games are peekaboo and hide-and-go-seek. And these are the very powerful windows into the mind of all that you need to know about your children. You can know so much about your children um, at an early age by thinking and looking at how they play these games. And the psychologist says that not only is peekaboo an important teaching tool for early language skills, which I don't know what language skills you're learning when you play peekaboo. This lady must play peekaboo very different than I do. The only peekaboo, that's that's the language, okay? That's that's all. All right. But she says that not only does it do that, but it provides an early education into the world of physics. That's an amazing claim that peekaboo can do that. And she says that that when young infants have this mindset that they live in this world, that the only things that really exist are the things that they can see right in front of them. And so if they can't see something right in front of them, then it doesn't exist anymore. Okay, So from the mindset of an infant, okay, we're talking a very young child, that when you play peekaboo, when you hold up that blanket between you or you hold up that towel, whatever it is, between you and that child, for that child, you are gone. You no longer exist because they don't see you anymore. All right? 
Now, that's a very interesting idea to think about the world, that, that when you don't see things, they don't exist. And so around the age of four to six months, this psychologist says that the kids start to understand this idea of what we call object permanence, that, that they start to understand that just because they can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. Just because something disappears doesn't mean it's not really there. And so she will look at these children, she'll watch these kids play, and she says she's starting to notice between four and six months that when a kid plays peekaboo, they want to get involved in the game. They, 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 don't under, they begin to understand that mommy and daddy really didn't disappear. They're just on the other side of the blanket. And so what you'll notice between four and six months is you, those kids will start to reach up and try to pull the blanket down themselves. Right? Or you'll put the blanket on them and they'll pull it down because they realize that you're still there. And they want to see mommy or daddy or whoever's playing peekaboo with them. And so they, they begin to develop this concept of object permanence that even though they can't see it, it's still there. And the psychologist goes on to say that as children age, the game just changes a little bit. It transformed from peekaboo to the more sophisticated game of hide-and-go-seek. Now, I never thought of hide-and-go-seek as a sophisticated game, but I guess when you're dealing with toddlers and infants, that's true. And so she admits that toddlers are super enthusiastic about hide-and-go-seek. They love to play this game. And if you've ever had a toddler, you know they love to play this game. The other thing you know about it is that they are terrible at playing this game. Because they don't have what they call self-awareness. All right? They don't understand that just because, um, the, just because they are hiding and you can't see them, or they can't see you, doesn't mean you can't see them. So what you'll find with a little child or a toddler is that um, they'll hide, they'll put their head in a box and leave like everything else exposed. Like they'll, they'll have a box from here up and everything else is uncovered, and they're surprised that you find them. Right? Their legs and their feet are completely obvious to everything. They'll hide behind this really small toy who covers up their face, and they think that you can't find them anywhere. Because they're working from this mentality that if I can't see you, then you can't see me. And so this lasts until a kid is about three or four years old. And so at that age, a kid starts to develop this idea of self-awareness. They begin to understand that it may not necessarily be true, that, that you may see them even though they can't see you. All right? And by the way, this is a concept that teenagers need to remember as well for their parents. That just because your parents aren't there and don't see you, doesn't mean they don't know what's going on. And so I read this article and I was somewhat saddened by the fact that, that as infants and children, we grasp these two very basic concepts, object permanence and self-awareness. We grasp this idea that just because we can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. And just because we can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't see us. We get that in the physical world as an infant and a toddler. But the thing that saddens me most is there are a whole lot of adults sitting maybe in this room or maybe online and in this world that we don't grasp those two simple concepts when it comes to God. We forget that there's a God who sees everything and a God who sees all that there is and hears everything. We forget these two attributes of God, that He is both omnipresent, meaning that He is everywhere all the time, at any moment He is everywhere, and we forget that He's omniscient, meaning that He knows everything. Therefore, He sees everything. Okay, And so these two attributes of God, we talk about them all the time, but we, just, we don't necessarily connect the dots. And this very clear demonstration of these two attributes in the story of Elisha and this king of Aram because in the, the king of Aram, he's going to attack the nation of Israel. And Aram is the northeast area of Israel, modern-day Syria, if you're kind of familiar with maps and you're kind of used to that area. And so the king Aram, he's going to come down and he's going to battle against the nation of Israel. And he's going to do this. He's going to fight against them. And so he does uh, what most people do. He has a circle of advisors, a circle of kind of generals. It calls them his servants in this text, but it's kind of his trusted group. Right? And he tells them, hey, listen, we're going to go set our camp up over here all right, in this certain location. All right? And I love how it says it in verse 8. It's kind of, I don't know if all translations read it the same way. Uh, and it says in verse 8 that he's going to go set his camp in such and such place. All right? Now, I don't know if that's just a southern translation of the actual Greek. I didn't look into that, but that's just the way I would say it. We're going to go to such and such place. All right? But he tells his generals, he tells his army, hey, we're going to go set up camp in a certain location. And from what we gather, it never tells us what location it is. From what we gather, this is a place that he's not expected to be. 
This is a place that he's kind of setting an ambush or a trap for the Israelites and for the king of Israel. This is a place that he thinks is kind of a secret that he thinks that, that he can kind of ambush and he can kind of get through and uh, catch the, the nation and the men of, and, the Israel, and the king of Israel. Maybe he can catch them off guard. And so he tells his servants that this is where they need to go. And so the men of the army of Aram, they start to get ready. They start to get all, all the stuff ready and they start to head towards this certain location. And as they approach this certain location, they round up with a huge surprise. Because they were the ones that were supposed to surprise the nation of Israel. But what they found is that when they got there, the nation of Israel already knew they were coming. The sneak attack wasn't on the nation of Israel. It was on the, the army of Aram. And so these, these men think they're going to surprise the Israelites, but the Israelites surprise them because not only are they ready for them, they know they're coming. They're expecting them. So they countered this sneak attack. They have anticipated the, and they're prepared for what was supposed to be this complete surprise. All right? And so this makes the king very mad. And we know by reading verses 9 and 10, we have this idea uh, that we have this text that Aram, or the king of Aram, doesn't have. In verse 9 and 10, we know that Israel has a secret weapon. Okay? And the secret weapon in verse 9 and 10 is this prophet named Elisha. This is, um, the man of God, in verse 9, as it says, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. And the man of God is the prophet Elisha. He's the spokesman for God who speaks to the king of Israel. And he tells the king, be careful when you pass by this place, for the Armenians are going down there. And so Elisha is described as the man of God, in verse, and he's telling the king, this is where they're going to go next. This is their battle plan. This is where you need to look out for. Don't get caught in this trap. Don't get caught in this place. This is where they're going to set up their sneak attack. This is where they're going to set up their ambush. And so in verse 10, the king hears this, and he does the wise thing. He sends word to the place that the attack's going to take place. He, he sends advance notice. So the people or the army that's there, they can get ready. They're prepared. And so when this other army comes in thinking that they, they're going to sneak in and, and everything's going to be quiet and hush-hush, they're surprised to know that the people and the army that's there, they're all ready for the attack. In fact, they go on the attack. And so as you can imagine, if you were the king of Aram in this situation, that you would be furious by this. Because this doesn't just happen once. In verse 10, it says that he repeatedly warned the king. It means this happens over and over and over again. I couldn't imagine being the king of Aram trying to figure out, all right, so here's our plan of attack. And you try that plan thing that's top secret and find out that it wasn't a secret at all. And then you try this plan, and that's top secret. But that doesn't work because they already know. I can't imagine being so frustrated that every move you make is already anticipated by your enemy. All right? Even if you were a coach in basketball or football, imagine if every play that you called was already anticipated by the ones that you were going against. That would be very frustrating. So the king of Aram is so mad that somehow the king of Israel and the people of Israel, they're able to anticipate his every move. And so he gets so mad at this, he jumps to the only conclusion that he thinks can make sense. And in verse 11, he, he calls in all these advisors. In verse 11, it says, The king of Aram was enraged because of this matter. And he called his servants. Right? So he calls in all these advisors. He calls in all these trusted officials. And then he demands of them, Tell me, which one of us is for the king of Israel? See, for him, the only logical conclusion is that someone is a spy. That someone is a mole. That someone's working for the other side. And so he calls them all together and he demands to know which one of you is the spy. Which one of you is giving away our secrets? Which one is actually here but you're fighting for the king of Israel because you're telling them everything? It's got to be one of the men sitting in this room because you're the only ones that know the secret plans that I've told everybody. You're in this room. And so you can imagine if you were sitting right there that this is kind of a tense moment of meeting with the king because somebody has been trading secrets and somebody is about to be exposed. And by the way, when somebody is exposed, they're going to be killed as a traitor because they're going to make an example of this person who's a traitor to the nation. And so I can imagine that sitting around this group of people, there's some nervous folks. And I imagine, and this is just the Michael Rakes version, I imagine there's even some accusations or some, some murmuring going on. It's like, maybe it's that guy. That guy looks funny. I don't like him anyway. Let's, let's accuse him. All right? uh, that guy has a different haircut. I don't like him. Let's, let's accuse him. All right? I saw this guy sneak off into the woods one day, and so he must be selling the secrets. I imagine there's all kinds of these accusations, there's all kinds of these rumors that are flying around this group that are a little bit nervous. And so finally in verse 12, one of the servants comes up with a solution. An answer, And he says to the king of Aram, he says, No one, my lord, the king. 
And he's speaking to his king there. He says, Elisha, the prophet of Israel, he tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in your bedroom. He says, Elijah, the prophet, the spokesman of God, he's the one that's telling the king of Israel what you're going to do. And, and so it's none of us. It's none of us that, that, that are, are spies. Elisha's the one that knows all your secrets. In fact, Elisha's the one who knows the, the words that are spoken into your bedroom. Now understand, this is a very significant thing. He doesn't just say Elisha kind of hears what's going on and gets word of this. He says he knows the words that are spoken in your bedroom. Now to understand the significance of that, you've got to understand the bedroom is the king's sanctuary, if you will. Not that it's his place of worship. It's the only place where he is, is left alone. It's the only place that he's not under constant watch. It's the only place that is secret and totally by himself. You see, even the royal guards don't come into the king's bedroom unless he calls them in there. Right? They guard the outside. They guard the doors. They guard the perimeter of the bedroom. But they don't come in unless the king yells for them or unless the king wants them to come in. So when he enters his bedroom, it's the one place that he can do whatever he wants to because nobody else knows. It's the one place where he can say whatever he wants to because nobody else is going to pay attention to it. No one else is around to hear it. You see, every other place, he's got to look official. He's got to act official. He's got to be on guard about what he says. But when he gets in his bedroom, it's a quiet, it's a secret place. It's a place that only he knows what goes on in there because nobody else is allowed in there. It's a place where he can do what he wants, say what he wants, and he's, it's the only place that he is totally alone. And the God of Israel knows what's going on in this room that nobody else does. See, and this servant is able to understand what the king missed and what so many of us miss is the fact that just because you think you're totally alone in there, you're not. The God of Israel, He sees everything and He knows everything that happens, even in your secret sanctuary, even in the secret place. And so every word that you speak in your chambers, every word that you speak in your bedroom, when you think nobody else is around and nobody else is hearing, God sees it and He hears it because He's omnipresent and He's omniscient and He knows these things. And He's telling this to the prophet and the prophet is the one who warns them. And so you need to understand, King, there's no such thing as a secret place. He sees all and He knows all. Now for some of us, for all of us actually, this is either a very convicting thought or a very comforting thought. For some of us, let's be honest, this should be a very scary thought, or, or could be a very scary thought, because for some of us, we have this mindset that we think that when we leave the walls of this church, or when we leave church people, that we leave God behind as well. That, that we have this idea that we do things in private, we do things in secret places that we wouldn't dare do in church, or we wouldn't dare do around church people. We say things that we wouldn't say in church or we wouldn't say around church people. And it's okay because we left those people and we left that place behind. So we really left God behind. And so we act a certain way. We do certain things in a secret place, in a quiet place that we wouldn't do if we were around church people. And we connect this place and these people with the God and we forget that God is not just here, that He is everywhere. And so what you think you're doing in secret, it's not a secret. What you think you're getting by with that nobody else knows about, God knows every bit of it. And so for some of you, this is kind of a scary thought because we forgot about the omnipresence and the omniscience of God. We forgot about this, this idea that the secret Instagram you account that you have that you don't think your parents knows about, they may not, but God does. We seem to think that we have these secret habits that we can hide from everybody else and we can do these habits when nobody else is around or when certain people are around and we think that we can hide it from our friends and our spouse and everybody else who's here. We can do that. But you can't hide it from God because He's always there and He always sees and He always knows and so there's nothing you can do. There's never a moment in time or any moment of your life that He's not seeing and knowing you. And so what do we do? Instead of coming to Him confessing, God, you're right. I know that you see these things and I know that you, I'm doing things that are wrong. Instead of coming to Him confessing to those things, what do we do? We revert back to playing peekaboo like we were when we were infants. Well, if I can't see Him, He can't see me. If I, can, if, I, if, if I just get away from these church folks, I can do what I want to in the secret place because God can't see me over here. And we built this secret place that we think that God can't see. 
And the reality is that there's nothing that God can't see. And so for some of you, this is a scary realization. We know it, we just don't live it. And for some of you, this honestly could be a very comforting situation, a very comforting realization for you. Because let me give you the reverse. And for some of you, this is where you're at. For some of you, you will leave this place today. And you will leave this place today, and you'll leave work tomorrow, and, and you'll go to your house, and you'll sit in your bedroom, and you will have had something happen in your life, and you will sit in your bedroom, and you will cry yourself to sleep tonight, or maybe tomorrow night, or maybe some other night. And you'll cry yourself to sleep, and you'll wonder if anybody sees or anybody knows. I assure you that God does. For some of you, you will go to what you think is the secret place in your life and you won't expose your vulnerabilities to anybody else, but God knows them. You'll go to those moments that you feel invisible, that nobody in the world knows that you even exist, but I want to assure you that God does. You'll have those moments that you feel isolated and all alone because you have nobody to talk to, but it's not true because you do. God is there. He's the ever-present Father that sees every tear you cry. He knows every heartache that you've ever felt. He's the ever-present Father who has never left you and never will. You see, there's a plus side to God being all-present. There's a plus side to God being all-seeing and all-knowing. The secrets that you think are locked in your heart that nobody else knows about, He does. The pain and the heartache that you feel that nobody else knows about, He does. And He cares enough about you to see into your life. He cares enough about you that He's not going to leave you in that situation alone. One of my favorite movies as a kid, and honestly, I hesitate to even write this in my text this morning. One of my favorite movies as a kid, the reason I'm hesitant to even tell you this is because it's way too early in the year to talk about this movie. Okay? But it just fits so well, and it just kept coming to my mind. And so, one of my favorite movies as a kid was the movie Home Alone. Okay, Do not decorate. Don't even try it. Don't go to Hobby Lobby because they already think it's Christmas time. Don't do it, okay? So, but I, I want to share with you, most of you are familiar with that movie. And uh, this kid named Kevin, he gets unintentionally left alone with his family as they go uh, to Paris for Christmas. And these couple of guys are robbing all the houses in the neighborhood that people aren't around. And, and so Kevin is a little bit like this story. And Kevin uh, is able to uh, defend his house. He's able to anticipate the attack on his house. And he's a little bit like the Israelites in this story. But near the end of the movie, there's this moment when we think things are, are going to go bad. Okay, Some of you might be familiar with Kevin thinks he's outsmarted these guys. And, and he goes one way and they go another way. And so Kevin opens up the door of this neighbor's house thinking that he's escaped them. And when he opens up the door, there are the two bad guys. Okay, some of you remember this movie. There they are. And so they grab Kevin and, and they've got him. And so then they hang him up by the back of his jacket. They hang him up on the back of the door. And you can hear them talking to each other. And they're like, this is what we're going to do to him. Because he did all these bad things to us. Because he made us do through all these traps and all these problems. This is what we're going to do for him. And in that moment, things look really bad. In that moment, things look like this is the end. That, that maybe for the end of Kevin, this is the end of the story. There's no hope left in this story. But then all of a sudden, Kevin sees something that the robbers doesn't see. His eyes are open to something that robbers don't have a privilege to see. And what Kevin sees is that there's another neighbor who saw part of this going on, and he sneaks in kind of a back way. And so as Kevin looks like hope is lost, as Kevin is there and, and everything is bad, all of a sudden, this other neighbor sneaks in and just whacks one of the guys with a snow shovel and just knocks him cold against the door. And then without even really slowing down, he knocks the other guy out with the same shovel. And, and so uh, all of a sudden, Kevin it, it goes from this moment of despair to this moment of joy. Kevin goes from this moment of this is the end to now we, we got something going here. This is going to be great. You see, when your eyes are open, you're not blinded by what's just right in front of you. You're able to see what's beyond you. And so when the king of Aram, he is furious that Elijah keeps thwarting his plans. And he sends men to the city of Dotham to capture Elijah. Because in his mind, if Elisha is the problem, if Elisha is able to know everything, if I get rid of him, then the king of Israel should be no problem. So let me take care of Elisha first, and then I'll go after the rest of Israel. Okay? So the king of Aram sends uh, this army, not just a few men, in verse 14. He says that he sends horses and chariots and a massive army. And they went by night and they surrounded the city. 
All right? Then we read on in verse 15. He says, The servant of the man of God got up early, and he went out and he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. Don't you think for just a moment. This poor guy went to sleep and everything was quiet and calm and still and nothing was happening. Sidotham's kind of a quiet, sleepy little town anyway and everything's calm and peaceful. And he wakes up the next morning, he goes outside and he looks around and there's an army. Not just a small army, a massive army that has surrounded the whole city at this point. And so he does what he can, the only thing he can think of, he goes back and he asks Elijah, he says, Oh my master, what are we to do? By the way, there's a reason it mentions horses and chariots twice in that passage. Do you realize that? In verse, uh, in, in, in here in uh, verse 15, and then um, in verse 14, it mentions these horses and these chariots because in those days, the chariot was the most advanced, most deadly weapon in war that there was. If you had chariots, you were above and beyond just a normal battle army. Okay, This was the most lethal weapon that there was. And so understand, this isn't just a few fighting men. This is a well-trained army. They had the latest and greatest military tools that are available to him. And this servant, this is bad. This is bad. All right? I want you to imagine you're this servant. You wake up and you look out and you see this army. And they're not just an army. They've got chariots. And they've got horses. And you're like, oh, this, this is like Kevin hanging on the door. Bad. This looks like the end of their life. This is, this is bad. Elisha, what are we going to do? We can't fight them. There's too many of them. We can't run from them because we're surrounded. And you can hear the panic in this voice. He knows that at this moment we are doomed. We are helplessly trapped here. And then Elisha gives this calm response in verse 16. He simply says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Man, Elijah, what, what are you talking about? Elijah, have you looked out the window and seen this army that's out there? Elijah, have you looked and seen the size of this army? Have you seen? That it's not, Elijah, they got chariots. They've got horses and chariots. This is, this is a problem. Elijah, what do you mean don't be afraid? What do you mean that we're outnumbering them? We don't even have an army here. We have no defense whatsoever. What do you mean don't be afraid that we're outnumbering them? Have you seen? Elijah, I think you need your eyes checked. I think you need to go and, and, and wash your face. Something's wrong. Elijah, are you blind? Can you not see what is in front of us and behind us and all around us? Can you not see that we're trapped here? And Elijah gives him this idea that, listen, you're not seeing the whole picture. In verse 17, he gives a very short but a very powerful prayer. He says in verse 17, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. And so the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the mountain was covered, get this, with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. David Gusick notes this. He says, Elijah doesn't pray that God changes anything about the situation. He simply requests that the servant could actually see the reality of the situation. Elijah doesn't pray that the army's gone. He doesn't pray that they're wiped away. He simply wants the servant to know they're not alone in the battle. And God has not left them. God has not left them to fight for themselves. And so he simply prays, God, I want him to see what the reality is. And suddenly the servant sees this battle from a totally different perspective. You see this massive army of the, of the enemy. They're dwarfed by the army of God. The, the chariots of the, of the king of Aram, they look insignificant next to a chariot of fire that is surrounding them. The, the sense of hopelessness and the sense of certainty of death and destruction, it gives way to a sense of hope and peace and actually in a sense of assurance for victory. You see, far too often, we are just like this servant. We focus on the physical things that are right in front of us and not the spiritual realities that are all around us. Far too often we wake up in the morning and all we see is destruction all around us. All we see is an army that's just ready to conquer us with our next breath. All we see is an army that's going to be defeating us and destroy us so quickly that we don't even have a defense. And Elijah says, open your eyes and see and realize that God didn't leave you surrounded by this army by yourself. 
Open your eyes and realize that every word of God's promise is true. That, yeah, that army is big, but our God is bigger. Open your eyes and realize that the army is strong, but our God is stronger. Open, that, open your eyes and realize that, yeah, the army is surrounding you, but you're not fighting this battle by yourself. That God has promised He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to fight the battles for you. He's promised that greater is He who's in me than He who's in the world. You've got to understand that when you look with the physical eyes, things look bad. But when you look at the spiritual reality this around you, you begin to see that God is much bigger and stronger than you give Him credit for. That yeah, they've got weapons, but God's promised you those weapons aren't going to prosper. They've got chariots, but you've got a God who has chariots of fire. You see, when our eyes are open, we begin to realize that we don't have to be afraid because those that are with us far outnumber those that are against us. That The enemy looks bad, and the enemy looks difficult, and the enemy looks like we can't do anything, and guess what? You don't have to. Because God's got you surrounded. God has you taken care of. J. J. Campbell Morgan once wrote that faith is never the imagining of unreal things. It is the grip of things that cannot be demonstrated by the senses, but which are all the more real. The chariots of horses and the chariots of fire, they were there. Whether the servants saw them or not. They were there. And so understand this morning that you may be surrounded and you may be in the midst of this great battle, but you're surrounded by even a greater cloud of witnesses. You're surrounded not only by a great army, but an army that is full of the chariots of fire. That you are surrounded by a God who is much bigger and stronger than any army that's going to come against you. That the enemy looks bad, but God looks badder. The enemy looks strong, but God is stronger. The enemy looks massive, but God is even bigger. And until we begin to look through the spiritual eyes and see how big and strong and mighty our God is... We're always going to focus on the army that surrounded us instead of the army that surrounded them. You see, when we look and have spiritual darkness in our life, we can easily be deceived into following the wrong path or taking the wrong direction. See, after Elijah prays for his servant's eyes to be open, the, the army starts to advance towards Elijah. And Elijah prays a second time, but this time it's very different. He prays the opposite in verse 18. He says, "...to strike this nation with blindness." And so God struck the nation with blindness according to Elijah's word. So it's interesting. He prays for his servants' eyes to be open. But he prays for these armies' eyes to be closed, that they not be able to see. And so this massive army, none of them can see. And you can almost picture in your mind there's this confusion. There's this chaos. They know where they're at. They know what's going on. And all of a sudden, bam, none of them can see anything. You can almost see these thousands of, of trained soldiers just kind of feeling their way around, putting their hands out, because they can't see anything. They don't know what direction they're going in. They don't even know where Elisha's at at this moment. And so instead of turning around and running away, Elisha does something that wouldn't be expected. It's something I wouldn't have done. He steps out in the middle of them, and he gets all their attention. I imagine he's yelling at this point. And so we, we see that all of a sudden, that he's able to tell them in verse 19. He gets their attention. He says, this is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I'll take you to the man that you're looking for. Now, he's a little deceptive in that. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you because they were looking for him. They knew they were at the city where they were supposed to be. All right? They didn't just point blank, hey, let's just try to figure this out. They knew they were, they, where they were supposed to be. They knew that they were going to be there. This is a well-trained and well-disciplined army. They knew who they were going after, and many of them had probably advanced enough. They had seen Elijah at this point. But all of a sudden, he steps up and he says, no, 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 this isn't the right way. You just follow me, and I'll take you to the guy that you're looking for. And they do it. Why? Because they're so blind that they have no choice but to follow the voice and this feeling that feels right. We're just going to follow this guy. Wherever he leads us, we'll go. And so he leads them all the way to Samaria, which is an 11-mile trip, okay? All the way to this, this different city in a different part of the nation of Israel. By the way, you probably need to know, it's important that we understand, Samaria is the capital of Israel. He leads them from the edge of the battlefield to the very heart and center of the enemy, to the enemy territory. At this moment, they are 11 miles inside enemy territory. They are deep within enemy territory, all because they followed something that felt right. All because they followed a voice. They couldn't see it. They didn't know what it was. They, but they, they, they get at this point, and by the time they realize where they're at in verse 20, when he prays their eyes be open, they realize, oh, dude, we're in Samaria. We're stuck. 
We didn't mean to come this far. This is not the place we wanted to be at all. We were okay going to Dothan, but we sure didn't want to wind up this far into the enemy territory. We weren't prepared for this. And now we have no way to escape. And I think there's a very real warning for all of us in these few verses that we often overlook that how easily we can find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time because we choose to walk around in spiritual darkness. You see, for some of us, it's not a physical darkness. It's a spiritual darkness that we walk around in. And so we just follow voices. We just follow the loudest voice that we can hear. And if we're not careful, we follow that voice or that feeling and we wind up going much, much further than we were willing to go in the first place. If we're not careful, we open our eyes one day only to find out that it's too late. We open our eyes one day only to find out that we're in much deeper trouble than we thought we were going to be in. You see, we started by this spiritual darkness and we just kind of followed this voice who led us this way. And then he led us a little further and a little further. And we never meant to go this far. But by the time our eyes were opened, we realized that the enemy took us way deeper than we wanted to go. And now he's cost us way more than we were willing to pay. You see, for many of us, we, we can't understand why the world is the way it is. For many of us, we can't understand why people act certain ways. We can't understand why they do the things they do. It's because they're walking around in spiritual darkness. And it's so easy to deceive someone who doesn't have their eyes fixed on Jesus. It's so easy to deceive someone who doesn't have their focus on God. And so understand this, that the reason people act the way they do is because they're not seeing with spiritual eyes. They're just responding to the voices that are around them. And it takes them to a place they never intended on being. It takes them to a place they never wanted to be in the first place. It takes them to a place much deeper and further than they want to be. And so I want to share with you that, that, that we need to make sure that we are praying for ourselves when Elijah is praying for this servant. God, open our eyes so that we can see for ourselves. Open our eyes to the dangers that are beyond what we think they are. And we need to be praying this every single day for each and one of us. And we need to be praying it for each other. We need to be praying for our kids and for our grandkids. God, open their eyes so that they don't fall into this deception. They don't follow this voice that is leading them because it's the loudest voice. God, open their eyes so that they can see and they don't make a mistake that takes them much further than they're ever going to be able to get out of. You see, in this story ends with a twist and really a challenge for a lot of us. The final point of this story is that when we begin to see with spiritual eyes, we begin to see and understand who the real enemy is. You see, Elisha leads these blind, this blind massive army all the way to Samaria, all the way to, to the king of Israel. And he's ready to hand them over to the king of Israel. And, and the king of Israel is all excited about this. I mean, let's be honest. This would be the greatest thing ever. This army that's been fighting against you, this army that you've been battling back and forth, all of a sudden they show up at your doorstep led by this prophet, and they're completely blind. They're completely defenseless at this point. And even when their eyes are open, you've got them. I mean, you've got them surrounded. They're in your home territory. They, they can't even run the 11 miles to escape because they're, they're within your grasp. This is a, a hand moment. This is a beautiful moment for the king of Israel. And so the, but he's a little confused. He doesn't exactly know what to do because normally when you go into battle, you go in and killing these people. And now they've come to you. And so he asked Elijah, am I, what am I supposed to do with this? I've never had the enemy come to me defenseless before. Do I kill them? I'm ready to. You just give me the word and I'm going to do it. But is that what I'm supposed to do? And so he checks with Elijah first. And in verse 22, Elijah gives him this very unexpected response. And pretty much what he was expecting them was, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's kill them all because they are the enemy. But what he shows them in verse 22 and 23 is, listen, these guys, they're not the real enemy. In verse 22, he tells them, he says, don't kill them. Do you kill those that you have captured with the sword or with your bow? Set food and water in front of them so they can eat and drink and go to their master. And don't kill them. Feed them instead. Give them a good meal and let them go on their way. What kind of sense does that make? You've got the enemy right there in your hands. You've got the enemy right there in front of you. And Elijah says, no, no, no. This isn't the real enemy. This isn't the ones that you're fighting against. You see, these men in front of you, they're not the enemy that you're trying to defeat. And if you killed all of these men in front of you, you would still have to be fighting a battle because they're not the enemy. You see, the enemy is the king of Aram. 
The enemy is the one who's telling these men what to do. The real enemy is the one who's controlling these men and giving these men orders. The king of Aram, he's the real enemy. It's not these guys. These guys are just following the orders. And so what you need to do is you need to feed them and send them on the way because they're not your real enemy. Your real enemy is beyond them. Your real enemy is above them. Your real enemy is the one giving them orders and commands. And so that's who you need to go after. You see, he's actually living out Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. It says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Verse 22, For you will will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. It's the same thing we see with the message of Christ when he says, pray for those who persecute you. What kind of sense does that make? You see, Israel understands their reward is coming because in verse 23, after they feed them and send them on the way, in verse 23, the Aramean raiders did not come to Israel's land again. You see, for a moment... There's a sense of peace. For a time period, there's a sense of peace. These guys, because we've been nice to them, they're not going to come back and try to fight us again. Now, eventually the the Assyrians do come back and they do fight. But these guys, their hearts have been changed. Their life is different. They don't come back into Israel's land again. Instead, what we have is another set of guys, another army that's going to come take their place. And so you're sitting there and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with us? You see, far too often we look at the people in front of us and we think they're our enemy. But the truth is the people that you see each and every day, they're not the real enemy. Let me tell you this, the drug addict that you see, he's not the enemy. The addiction is the enemy, not the addict himself. Satan and sin are the real enemy that holds the addict's life captive. The the addiction is is the enemy. The addict himself, the person, he's not the enemy. He's just following orders of a master that's higher than him. He's following orders and he's listened to a loud voice that's controlling him. You see, the person is not the enemy. The sin in his life is the enemy. The one who's controlling him, that's the enemy. And so it's not just an addict. It's anyone who lives a different lifestyle than us. They're not the enemy. The person is not the enemy that we need to seek and destroy them. what we need to do is be nice to them and destroy the enemy that's controlling their life. You see, the same goes for anybody living in any type of sin. That person is not the enemy. What they are is a lost soul that needs to see the love of Christ through somebody else. That person is a person that needs to see there's a different way to live. There's a different master that I can be controlled by. There's a different master that I can give my life to. And so understand that the people you encounter each and every day, I don't care how mean to you they are, I don't care how ugly to you they are, they're not the enemy of your life. The one who controls them is. The sin in their life is is the enemy that we need to go after. And so in Elijah's case, the best thing that we can do, if we want to open their eyes spiritually, we got to do our job. And our job is to pray that their eyes are opened. Not to us, but to the one we serve instead of the one that they serve. Our job is to be to to them what nobody else has been to them. Our job is to be for them, to show them the one who's more satisfying than anything this world has to offer them. Our job is to show them that, yeah, that drug may be strong, but our God is stronger. Our job is to show them that their enemy is tough, but our God is tougher. Our, Our job is to show them their enemy may be holding tight to them, but our God says, you'll never take these out of the palm of my hand. Our job is to show them the love of Christ in a way that makes them turn their back on the real enemy that we're fighting against. Our job is not to fight against them. They are not our enemy. I don't care how different you think we are. It's not the person that's the enemy. It's the sin that controls them that is the enemy. That is where our fight lies. It is the Satan and the lies and the deception that they have believed and they have followed their whole life. That is where we need to fight. Not against the person. And so when you're confronted with an addict and when you're confronted with a different lifestyle, when you're confronted with somebody who is standing in front of you and being all kinds of mean and hateful, you realize that is not the enemy. The enemy is the one controlling them. And if you really want to do that person well, make Elisha's prayer your prayer for them. God, open their eyes so they can see how nasty this enemy is and how good our God is. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that when the situation around us looks desperate, God, when the situation around us looks hopeless, when all we see is certain defeat and destruction, God, when all we see is certain death, God, I pray that we will open our eyes. 
God, I pray that you will open our eyes to a world that is far beyond what we see here and now. God, that you will open our eyes to the spiritual realities that surround us. And God, even though we don't see it, doesn't mean it's not there. And even though we don't see you, doesn't mean you're not there. Even though we don't see the armies that surround us, God, we know that your promise is true. God, that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, that you will never leave us to fight these battles alone. Whatever battles we are fighting, God, you have promised to fight them for us. God, you have promised us that, yeah, there's going to be weapons and there's going to be armies that we've got to face, but they're not going to prosper over us because those that are with us far outnumber those that are with them. The God that is in us and lives through us far outnumbers and is out stronger and out bigger and out greater than anything that they can throw against us. God, they may have chariots, but we have a God who serves and builds the chariots of fire. And so, God, I pray this morning that our eyes are opened. God, that we see this world, not just the physical realities that are around us, but we see the spiritual realities that are around us. God, and that we can face these troubles, we can face this time, we can face this world with a confidence knowing that the God who's in us is bigger than anything in front of us. That the God who loves us and will never leave us knows everything that happens in the deep, darkest secrets of our life. And God, when we are all alone and we feel like there is no one else who cares and knows or even knows that we exist. God, that we know that You do. God, when we feel like we can turn our back on You and walk away from You and You don't exist because we don't see You, God, open our eyes to the God that is always around. To the God who always sees. To the God who always knows. Not just what we say. Not just what we do, but in the very depths of our heart. God, this morning, I can't help but think there are people here in this room or there are people online. God, they need their eyes to be opened. God, the enemy has held them far too long. He's led them down a path much further than they intended to go. So God, hear the prayer of not my heart, but the heart of this whole church. God, open their eyes this morning and let them see You. God, open their eyes and let them see the God who stepped out of heaven, who hung on a cross to give them the ultimate victory. A God who loves them far more than they could ever even imagine. God, open our eyes and let us see You this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to sing one last song. And as we do, let your eyes be open. And if I can pray with you, I'll be here at the foot of the cross. If I can uh, talk with you about anything, I'll be here at the foot of the cross. But just fix your eyes on Him this morning. Let's stand and sing together.